Well, we are into the book of Ephesians. This is sermon number three in our series. If you have your print Bibles, I encourage you to open those to Ephesians chapter two. If uh, you're a little unfamiliar with where that is in the Bible, just go to the three-quarter mark and start going towards the back and you'll run into this amazing little letter, uh, the book of Ephesians. But as we begin, I want you to imagine with me for a second that it's winter and you are in Alberta. Before you is a glorious lake that's frozen over. Yeah. <laughs> it's been 20 below for the past 24 hours, and there isn't a doubt in your mind that the ice will hold you. So you go running down to the dock. You jump in, and you go right through the ice. You forgot that there was that warming period with a Chinook, and it warmed everything up. You were wrong. You had a ton of faith, but the ice was only one-eighth inch thick. It looked good on top, but it couldn't support your faith. A month goes by with a long stretch of really, really cold temperatures, followed by one day of warming. Your pneumonia has cleared up from the first time you jumped in the lake. And as you head down to the lake, you see a tiny glisten of warming on top. You're pretty nervous, but you head out onto the ice and you do it really tentatively and you're trying, but the further out you get, you realize, no, this is thick. Well, the ice turns out to be two feet thick. When we come to the good news of the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the reality is that it's not so much about our faith. It's about the object of our faith. And just like the two foot thick ice, the object of our faith is Jesus Christ and he is solid. He will never ever let us down. Even when we're at the beginning of the journey, we're filled with doubt, we can step out onto the ice. Well, the Apostle Paul, guided by the Holy Spirit in the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2, takes us deep into the heart of the Christian faith, the, what we call the gospel, the good news. And I want you to be conscious as you listen to this sermon this morning of the lesson of the ice, that it's ultimately not about the amount of our faith. You absolutely need some faith to start the journey, but that will grow over time. The focus is the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. Well, let's jump into the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The Spirit is who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. I've entitled the first point, The Gospel Problem. And when I title that, I don't mean there's a problem with the gospel. I mean that the good news of the gospel highlights the main problem facing humanity. Now, if I say the term genius physicist, who jumps to your mind? Einstein, there we go. And Einstein has an amazing quote. 
He said, given one hour to save the world, I would spend 55 minutes defining the problem and five minutes finding the solution. And Einstein's right. If you don't clearly know the details of the problem, you're going to come up with a wrong solution. And you know, our post-Christian Western world looks around at the different things that our societies are struggling with from drug abuse and 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 uh, death related to the opioid crisis, teen pregnancy, gangs. And the solution that our world comes up with most often is education. Just educate the general population more about the bad consequences of things and people won't do it. They'll stop those kind of behaviors. Except that it doesn't really work that way. People know that drugs will destroy their lives. But the Just Say No to Drugs campaign through the 80s and 90s, it just didn't work. Just warn people about sexually transmitted infections and they won't have promiscuous sex with a ton of partners. Well, actually no. As a pastor I worked with was fond of saying, education is not the problem. You know what the problem is? It's sin. Sin is that rebellious, selfish, human bent of our heart that consistently chooses ourselves over God. Our hearts say, I'm going to disregard what God says is best for me and I'm going to go do my own thing. I don't care who says anything about it. Well, Bible scholar Frank Thielman has taken a really careful look at these first three verses of Ephesians 2. And he's realized that Paul's telling us there's three things that lead human beings towards sin. He says, everyone without exception chose to sin. We're encouraged to do so from three different sources. Number one, the patterns laid down within the rebellious system of this world. You don't have to examine a culture very long to find out the flaws in a culture that lead people to sin. We look at our own Canadian history and our Canadian culture. We have the shame of our residential schools. We pluck kids out of their First Nations natural families, force them into learn in a way they weren't prepared for, and at its worst extent, those kids were abused. Are we at all surprised that some of those First Nations people who had to live through such a horrible experiences started to self-medicate with alcohol later in life? The whole corrupt system led to sin. Think about the first half of the Bible. If you pick up the prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, they're challenging the nation of Israel over and over and over again because the people looked good on the outside. Every week they would go to the temple, they would make their required sacrifice, they would recite their prayer, they would do the rituals But as soon as Monday came, they cheated each other in business. They abused foreigners as cheap labor. They ignored the widow and the orphan and anyone in need. Is it any surprise that the suppressed minority would steal in order to survive? I have a little quote book and I write down my favorite quotes. And every time I read this one, it catches my attention. It's by an African-American a Christian professor, and he says, Israel was taken into exile not only because of idolatry, but also because of systemic injustice. The whole system 
was horribly corrupt. If you think about third world countries today, you know, in many third world countries, people don't even bother calling the police because in order to get a policeman to come and investigate whatever crime has happened, you have to bribe the policeman. You got to do something illegal to get the police there. Pretty crazy. Oftentimes, the whole rebellious system set up in our world leads people to sin. Well, the second thing that leads people to sin, Paul says, is we are tempted to sin by the invisible ruler of the cosmic realm of evil, Satan and his demonic forces. Now, the classic excuse when someone is caught doing something wrong used to be, well, you know, the devil made me do it. Well, actually, the devil never made you do it. He tempted you to do it. He incited you to do it, and you went for it. So how does the devil specifically tempt us? Well, I think it always comes down that he appeals either to our pride on the one hand or our brokenness on the other. If he thinks he can tempt us with our pride, he would whisper something like, you're an amazing person. You're good looking. You're athletic. You don't deserve to be cooped up in this relationship. You are better than that. You should have an affair with that attractive person over there. You deserve to be happy. And Christian truth comes along and says, take a hike, devil. Sin is never the path to happiness that lasts. Choosing sin to make me happy is a short-term option with disastrous consequences. I made a promise to my spouse I'm going to rely on the power of Jesus to help me keep it. If, on the other hand, the devil thinks he can tempt us by appealing to our brokenness and our pain, he will whisper, you've been through so much. So many others have hurt you. You've gotten the raw end of the deal so many times. You deserve some happiness in your life. This alcohol, this drug, this pornography, you deserve to feel good for a while. Just go ahead and try it. Christian truth, which is ultimately the person of Jesus, comes on and says, do not let anything control you. Don't let anything control your life except the Holy Spirit. Drugs, alcohol in excess, and any kind of pornography are dead-end roads of addiction. You want more and more and get less and less happiness and thrills out of them. Don't run from the pain by hiding in these addictive substances. Come to me. Jesus says, come to me to experience true and fulfilling life. Well, what's the third thing that Paul says leads us as human beings into sin? He says, well, there's a natural human tendency to rebel against God. Ever since the fall, ever since that moment when Adam and Eve said no to God and what he wanted them to do, human beings have had a natural disposition to run the other way from God. At this point, we kind of are understanding better when we read Ephesians 2, 3, that actually Paul wasn't being overly harsh. It's actually the reality of the situation. Verse 3 says, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. I can't get to the root of the problem of sin any better than professor and author Cornelius Plantiga, who wrote these amazing words. He says, In the Christian life, 
Our primary task isn't to avoid sin, which is impossible anyways, but to recognize sin. Fact is, we're sinners, but there's an enormous amount of self-deception in sin. We don't want to face sin because we don't want to lose our God-like illusions. We're afraid that if we're not the gods of our own lives and actions, we're nothing. But God sets us free from such sin fears. When sin is discovered in us, our guilty fears often produce a sense of condemnation. But if we stay with the story, the God story, the David story, the Jesus story, before long that condemnation gives way, whether slowly or suddenly, to the surprise realization of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. And finally, he writes, we think that if our sin is taken away, we'll become less. What happens is we become more. Well, we didn't quite follow Einstein's advice. We didn't take 55 minutes to analyze the problem. But hopefully that's enough of an exploration of sin, that the what and why, to get us a proper perspective. Now we're ready to hear the good news of the gospel, the solution to humanity's main problem. And that's exactly where the Apostle Paul takes us next in verses 4 through 7. Paul writes, But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ, seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now, if there's two things you think about primarily when you think about God, are His traits of being incredibly loving and His trait of being just and holy. God loves us. He always has. He cannot love us more and will not love us less. And He is just. He always renders a just verdict. He always does the right thing. Now, those two characteristics of God, his love on one hand, his justice on the other, that puts God in a really interesting position when it came to you and I, to humanity and our problem of sin. Which side wins out? Is it the love side or is it the justice side? If it was his love side, God would probably want to let us off the hook. Just forgive us of our sin. But his justice side demands that the penalty be paid. So which side won? We have an amazing little video, a little animation from the Alpha course uh, to help us discover the answer this morning. There once were two little boys who were best friends. They played together went to school together, they even went to university together. They were inseparable, until their careers took them in very different directions. One became a lawyer, the other a criminal. As one was promoted to a judge, the other disappeared deeper and deeper into a life of crime. Eventually, the criminal was caught and sent to trial. On the fateful day in the courtroom, he came face to face with his old best friend, the judge. 
And so the judge had a dilemma. He loved his friend, but he had to do justice. And so he fined him the appropriate penalty for the offence. It was a huge fine. There was no way he could ever afford to pay what he owed. But then the judge took off his robes, went down, stood with his friend and wrote out a cheque covering the cost. He paid the penalty himself. It's a beautiful little video. And that's exactly what the Bible says, that God declared us guilty because we were. He demanded that a penalty be paid. Then he left heaven, came to earth, became a man, and died to pay that penalty. See, we didn't owe a financial penalty or a fine, so God didn't just write us a check. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. It's the death penalty. And Jesus died to pay that. Then he comes to offer his life on our behalf. Jesus says, I'll take the blame for every rotten thing you've ever done and give you credit for my perfect life. And what you need to do is accept it. Wow. And we thought it would be so much more complicated. Everything in the human spirit says, well, well, what about doing more good than bad? Isn't that how you're saved? In fact, world religions and cults from the dawn of time have been striving to earn their way into God's eternal favor. And that's what Paul addresses in our final three verses, verses 8 through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In 1993, the Barna Research Group asked a broad section of American Protestant Christians some questions about the nature and point of the gospel, the heart of the Christian faith. And they got back some interesting responses. 46% of those responding said, yes, I have a personal responsibility to explain and share my beliefs with others. Well, it's interesting that it was only half the people so that made me think this week, why was that? Is it a lack of understanding of the Great Commission where Jesus tells us to go and make disciples and teach people everything that he commanded us? Is it a lack of awareness of Jesus' charge to all of his followers down through history in Acts 1.8? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Is it a lack of teaching on 1 Peter 3.15? But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Maybe people felt a lack of confidence in what they believed. Maybe it's not wanting to offend others in a multicultural, multi-religion world. Who knows? But interestingly enough, 81% of those said that the Bible is accurate in all of its teachings and that Jesus Christ was crucified and resurrected. So you got people willing to share their faith. They're believing the right things. 
And then the final question was this. Do you dis agree or disagree? And 48% said this. If people are generally good or do enough good things for others, they will earn their place in heaven. Ah, <laughs> that's a tragedy. You cannot read these verses in Ephesians and come to that conclusion. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So George Barner, who heads up that research group, made this statement. He says, there's plenty of reason for churches to worry if nearly one half of their people who believe in evangelism also believe in salvation by works. The central message of Protestantism is in salvation by faith alone in Christ. Yet many Protestant evangelizers seem to be preaching a different message. I entitled this sermon, The Heart of the Gospel, and I'm serious about this. This isn't some kind of detailed point of theology that's outside the core message of the Christian faith. This isn't a, an obscure point that a bunch of old dudes with pipes sit around debating in the hollowed halls of Cambridge or Oxford or Princeton. This is core, core stuff and it has real world implications. And my aim is that every single one of us who call Ocean View Community Church home would know this in the deepest parts of our heart. Now, you may be here this morning, and this is the very beginning of your journey. You are checking this place out to see whether all of this is true. I love that, and please, please feel free to come, and no matter how long that journey takes. But even someone who comes here and hasn't even said yes to following Jesus yet needs to understand this extremely core point. Imagine the following conversation with me in your mind. We'll call it person A. They are not yet a Christian, not yet following Jesus, but they checked us out online. They went to our website, listened to some sermons, uh, got familiar, looked around at the church, came to Christmas Eve, loved it. They've been attending since. And they want to see, is this church legit? They want to see how we behave, where we give our money, what we do in the community, all those things. So that's person A. They're in the I'm checking it out stage. Now they end up going out with their friend for coffee. We'll creatively call that person person B. That person B has never been to a church and the little bit they know of the Christian faith is only from what they've kind of seen on the news or TV or something that they read or the few Christian people they interacted with. That's the sum total of, of their information. So person A and person B are out for coffee. Person B says, hey, have you seriously been going to that Ocean View church all, every week? Person A says, yeah, I, I figured I finally owed it to myself that I needed to check out whether it was true or not. And he says, oh, okay. So is it working? Are you a better person now? Have you stopped being a bad enough sinner in order to go to heaven? And person A says, well, I haven't really decided one way or the other. I'm still checking it out. But so far, one of the things I've learned is that they say people don't get to heaven by being a really good person and just by lessening the sin in your life. Person B says, really? Well, how are you supposed to qualify for heaven then? How do they think they're good enough? Person A says, 
Well, they don't believe that you can earn it at all. They say if they put all their faith in Jesus Christ, what He did for them by dying on a cross for the sins of the world, by being resurrected three days later as proof that He had conquered sin and death, that's how they say you gain eternal life with God. Now, if person A has that kind of conversation with someone in our community, I am doing cartwheels, setting off fireworks, throwing a party. Because that church is what our culture constantly misunderstands. You stop the average non-Christian person in this town, ask them what the core message of the Christian faith is, they will say, well, I think it's something about keeping the Ten Commandments and, and just trying to learn to be a really good person. Then you go to heaven. People have the balance scale so firmly embedded in their mind that you just do more good than bad and it tips the scale in your favor. But honestly, that's not it at all. A true understanding of the gospel and the practical freedom it gives us each and every day is a phenomenally glorious thing. J.D. Greer writes this. He says, When our salvation depends upon our righteous behavior, our righteousness will be driven by a desire to elevate ourselves in the eyes of God. That's not love for God. That's self-protection. The gospel, however, is the opposite. It reawakens us to the beauty of God, overwhelms us with mercy, so we respond out of pure thankfulness. The glorious wholeness of the gospel comes out when we read verses 8, 9, and 10 all together. We are not saved by good works. Verses 8 and 9 make that clear. And verse 10 tells us the rest of the story. It says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We aren't saved by good works, but you can be darn sure we are saved for good works. And with that plan of God, He prepared those plans, what you and I were meant to do in our life of following Jesus ages ago. It says we're God's handiwork. It's like you and I are God's personal art project. His handiwork designed and built to do great things. Well, I want to close today by showing you a picture of a man named Malcolm Muggeridge. There's a picture on the left of him as a young man and him as an older man. Malcolm Muggeridge was a British writer and journalist. He was a fearless writer. He wrote for numerous British newspapers. Uh, he wrote a ton of different books. In his youth, he was a total womanizer, gained a reputation as a groper of pretty young women. That was the sinful side of him. He was also had a glimmer of goodness in him. He courageously traveled to Ukraine and exposed Joseph Stalin, the Soviet leader's forced starvation of over 8 million Ukrainian people. In 2008, marking the 75th anniversary of that horrific genocide, the Ukrainian government awarded him the Ukrainian Order of Freedom for his work in exposing that injustice to the world. For most of his life, he was an agnostic, not able to prove that God didn't exist, but seriously doubting whether there was a God at all. It wasn't until his later years when he actually went to India and he began following around Mother Teresa, 
as she ministered to the people in most desperate circumstances in the city of Calcutta. And he eventually wrote a book on her, and it changed his life. Several more years of wrestling with God, and he finally came to Christ in his early 60s. These are the glorious words of Malcolm Muggeridge on the discovery of a true personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He wrote, I may, I suppose, regard myself as a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the streets. That's fame. I can fairly easily earn enough money to qualify for admissions to the higher slopes of the Internal Revenue Service. That's success. Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, may partake of friendly diversions. That's pleasure. It might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote was sufficiently heated for me to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. That's fulfillment. Yet, I say to you, and I beg you to believe me, multiply these tiny triumphs by millions, add them all together, and they are nothing, less than nothing. Indeed, a positive impediment measured against one drop of that living water Christ gives to the spiritually thirsty, irrespective of who or what you are. What an incredible statement. At the end of his life, he knew that if he piled up every one of his accomplishments that compared to the good news of the gospel, salvation, that personal relationship with Jesus Christ, it wasn't even a contest. And the good news, folks, is today we don't just get one drop of that living water, we get an entire ocean. These ten incredible verses at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2 are the heart of the gospel, in my opinion. They help us identify the problem of sin, its effects on us. Then it takes us to the solution, the greatest act of love in all of history, Jesus Christ willingly giving His life on a cross for our debt of sin. Like that judge in the little animation we saw, he condemns sin and then he takes off his robe and he comes down and pays the full fine. We will never fully understand the depths of that act of salvation. And the thirdly, these verses clarify the nature and effects of the gospel. We don't earn it. It's a gift. And it frees us up to become all we can be in the service of God. I want to leave you this morning with the most inspiring quotes I've ever come across. God wants from us not numb obedience, but devoted freedom, creativity, and energy. That's what the grace of God is for. Not simply to balance a ledger, but to stimulate the spirits of growth in zeal, in enthusiasm for shalom, in good hard work, in sheer delicious gratitude for the gift of life and all of its pain and all of its wonder. That Ocean View Community Church is the good news of the gospel. Amen? Richard, come and pray for us.